morning. My name's Beth. I'm going to read our sermon reading to us today. It comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but, but, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Thanks for a clear reading. I was just so caught up in the um, the story as I was hearing it again that I, I was sitting there when she finished. It's so good. Let's, um, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Dear Father, as we open your Word, please open our minds to understand and our hearts to believe. In Jesus' name. 
you know that I, I normally start with a story before I pray, but I thought it's really hard to kind of beat just a recap of last week. These events that we're reading about at the moment, they're incredible, aren't they? Well, last week, various people were interacting with Jesus as he travelled towards Jerusalem. We saw the children who trusted him and received his blessing. Then this man who loved wealth more than God. And I think the shocking thing in that moment was that Jesus loved him, but he also let him walk away. And then the bickering disciples who needed a lesson about serving others and suffering for the sake of the kingdom. And then a blind man who received the healing touch of Jesus and followed him. And we were challenged to consider our own response to Jesus and the things that might keep us from fully trusting and following him. And so in today's passage, Mark tells us about the first three days of this climactic final week of Jesus' life. I've given each section a title. Firstly, welcoming the king. Day two, worshipping the king. And day three, two keys to powerful prayer. You thought I was going to start with W, didn't you? <laughs> day one. Day one starts with Jesus giving rather odd instructions to two of his disciples about borrowing someone's donkey. Now, Jesus seems to know all about it. It's a young donkey, it's a colt, and it's never been ridden before. Not only that, he knows that when they go to get it, someone's going to question them, so he tells them what to say. The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. Now, this reply actually gives us a cultural clue about what's going on. In ancient times, a king had the right to commandeer a beast of burden. Hence the language, the Lord needs it, the master. Jesus is the master. But there's a far more important clue about what's happening here, and it comes straight from the Old Testament, from Zechariah. Thanks for reading that for us, Stu. Uh, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The fall of a donkey. Now many of us are so used to the story that we just forget how surprising some of these events are. Uh, think about it for a moment. This is what kings travel in. Yeah? But Jesus turns up in something more like this. <laughs> Instead of impressing people with a show of worldly power like this, Jesus comes humbly, riding a donkey and ready to serve. It really is a shock, isn't it? It was a deliberate act by Jesus to announce to Jerusalem, especially the religious leaders, who he was because they knew the scriptures. They got his message loud and clear. And the results, as we'll see in the, in the next few weeks, as we finish Mark's Gospel, the results were explosive. But as this final week of Jesus' life progresses, we must not see him as a victim in the hands of his enemies. Everything he does is deliberate. Everything that happens, it's unfolding and fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Everything that happens is exactly as Jesus said it would happen. He is in control. And because we see the suffering that he endures, we have to hold those things together. His suffering 
was a choice. He's in control. Jesus timed his arrival to coincide with the massive crowds of people who journeyed to Jerusalem for the, the Passover festival. Like a New South Wales coastal town at Christmas, the city population would triple for the week-long celebrations, and many in the crowd would have personally heard or seen the ministry of Jesus. They're coming in from the same direction. So messianic expectations are at fever pitch. They throw their cloaks on the ground, along with branches cut from nearby fields. This is how you welcome royalty in this this time. Uh, And they shout praises. And it's straight out of the book of Psalms. Lord, save us. That's basically what Hosanna means. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize Jesus as the promised son of David who has come to rule and to save. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, Psalm 118, that was being quoted there by the crowds. It is all about salvation, but I wonder, do the crowds recognize what kind of salvation Jesus had come to bring? Did they really trust him? Were they ready to follow him? Or were they still expecting Jesus just to overthrow the Romans with a mighty, powerful force? Ironically, just two days later, Jesus also quotes Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He quotes it to explain why he is rejected and despised. (coughs) Do you remember what the crowds were shouting just seven days later? Crucify him. And I think we need to check our hearts at this moment. It's so easy to welcome Jesus with the crowds here at church. What about tomorrow? It's easy here to sing the songs and and to smile at each other. But what happens in our hearts within a week or even a day or two? What happens to our hearts when we're in a different crowd? Do we still welcome Jesus? Do we still seek to honour and obey him as our king? And verse 11, quite frankly, is a bit of an anticlimax. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. We know what's going to happen, but just went in, had a look. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Kind of checks out the top sites and goes to a B&B in Bethany for the night. In comes the king. Out goes the tourists. What's going on? It was recon. It was late. He was scoping out the mission. And I think the reason he and his disciples left for the night, here and again in verse 19, is because there was already a well-developed plot (coughs) to take his life. And so we come to day two, worshipping the king. I've called it that because it's it's focused on the temple. And for nearly a thousand years, the, the temple had been the focus of Israel's worship. That's where they met with God. Uh, Notice how Mark frames all the drama at the temple with this rather odd fig tree story. I mean, who who stops and speaks to a tree? Um, Don't don't put your hands up. Um, And notice at the end of verse 13, Mark tells us it was not the season for figs. Now, this is Mark's way of showing us 
that Jesus is using this whole fig tree episode as a real-life parable to make a point. A fig tree covered with leaves is usually a sign of health, but there was no fruit. So too, the religious leaders and the worship of the temple had the appearance of health, but was in fact dead. Verse 20 says, withered from the roots. This indicates that the problem wasn't external, but it was internal. The temple wasn't threatened by opposition or persecution from the outside, but by the rebellious hearts of leaders on the inside. And the fact that Jesus cursed the, the, the fig tree, it's an ominous sign of the fate of those who stubbornly refuse to recognise Jesus as Messiah. And while he's speaking of the religious leaders here, I think we need to again check our own hearts. It's easy to play the, the victim card and, and find excuses for our failure to trust and follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, the real problem is always in the heart. Do we worship King Jesus and obey him as our king? When he enters the temple, Jesus is like a one-man picket line. This is extraordinary. I really wanted to, to, to make a bit more of this, and I was going to get the petting zoo in here and just get them to release it through the kitchen door and like just chase them around. You'd never forget the sermon, would you? Actually, you would forget the sermon. You'd just never forget that moment. It really is quite extraordinary what happens here. Tables overturned, money scattered on the ground, animals bleeding and running around. But it's not a fit of rage. It's a calculated action of judgment with huge implications. Verse 17, Jesus' accusation combines two uh, quotes from the Old Testament that show God's intention and the religious leader's corruption. Is it not good? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. God is the God of, notice it, all nations, not just the Jews. But the Jewish leaders had cut everyone else off. The religious leaders had converted the outer court of the temple where the Gentiles worship God into a stockland shopping centre. And by doing so, had robbed the Gentiles of their worship. Jesus makes a deliberate point. All nations are to worship God, Jews and Gentiles alike. <clears throat> including the Romans in Jesus' day. King Jesus is symbolically clearing the way for everyone. It's worth asking ourselves as a church, do we make it hard for anyone to come and see God? Is there anyone we might fail to welcome or avoid reaching out to? Anyone we might consider unfit for God's kingdom? Anyone who we might look at and think they'd never be interested in God anyway? Who are the Gentiles of our community? Friends, now is the time for all nations, all people, to worship God through the Lord Jesus Christ.
Now this incident, it's often referred to as Jesus clearing or cleansing the temple. But when we see it framed by the fig tree illustration, it seems more like Jesus condemning the temple. Again, the background is from the Old Testament in Jeremiah 8 and Micah chapter 7. A fruitless fig tree is likened to faithless Israel who will face God's judgment for her rebellion. And Jesus acts it out here. His words, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, is a clear judgment against the religious leaders and an indication that their role as teachers, faithless teachers, is over. That's it. They've been replaced by the one faithful teacher, Jesus, whose teaching produces good fruit in those who listen and obey. God's people no longer need to go to the temple to worship Him. We go to Jesus. Isn't that good news? Day three begins with Peter seeing the, uh, the withered fig tree and his response. So surprised. And Jesus sees yet another teaching opportunity, this time about prayer. I've called it two keys to powerful prayer. Peter expresses his surprise in verse 21. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus too is a bit surprised. Peter still doesn't get it. I mean, as readers of the gospel, we can see the pattern. Jesus says something will happen and it happens. Peter struggles. Actually, I reckon if we were there in that moment, I reckon we'd all struggle to believe too. Jesus' response begins with four important words. Have faith in God. There's our first key in prayer. Faith. 87 years ago, construction began on a wooden bridge to connect Wundang and Wurla. It's a little local history. Do you like that photo? The bridge was finally opened in the 2nd of April 1938. It was 1,050 feet long with a 12-foot clearance at high tide. Good planning. And a 20-foot carriageway and a 5-foot path. The bridge cost nearly £44,000 to construct. Now people had a choice. You could, in faith, step on that bridge and walk 320 metres or you could work, walk 39 kilometres right around the lake and get to the same point. I doubt anyone stood there thinking about it. I mean, cars crossed over, crowds of people crossed over. Oh, can I trust the bridge to get me across? Of course you can. People had faith in the strength of the bridge. Friends, God has the strength, the power, to answer our prayers. Trust Him. He loves us. He delights in answering the prayers of His children. Remember last week? We are encouraged to have childlike faith. Check this out. Look at the comparison on the screen. Children come as they are and they ask what they want. They've got nothing to offer. They're helpless by themselves. So they ask believing that help will come. Adults, not so much. 
Some of us were too proud or, or too afraid or, or even too ashamed to ask at all. If we do manage to ask, we struggle to believe. And if there's any delay in the answer, we too easily give up or just grow cynical. Friends, faith in God is well placed because he has the power to answer. What's more, he loves us. Hear me say that. He loves us and has the desire. He wants to answer the prayers of his children. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Back here in Mark 11, Jesus presses his point. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now it just sounds like a blank check straight from heaven, doesn't it? It'd be good to spend a whole weekend together exploring what the Bible says about prayer. But let me share a few brief thoughts. Friends, as we wrestle with a verse like this, we must recognise our desperate need of prayer. And yet we need to also acknowledge that sometimes we experience unanswered prayer. At least prayer that wasn't answered the way we, we hoped. As a kid, I tested this verse out. Asked for a Ferrari. <laughs> Still driving a Captiva. <laughs> but as life goes on, there are more serious concerns, aren't there? A really sick child. The need for a job. Perhaps the desire to have a child. Struggles in a marriage, a dying spouse. We could all insert our own painful concerns. An unanswered prayer can devastate our lives and our faith. So as I approach a verse like this, I feel two great dangers. Firstly, I do not want to ignore the context here or God's teaching about prayer elsewhere so much that God just becomes my personal genie who has to meet my every selfish demand. I just say it and bang, there it is. That puts me above God, telling him what to do. And we know that that is not right. Besides, we'll actually end up discouraged with lots of unanswered prayer. But secondly, I don't want to add so many caveats and exceptions and cultural or historical explanations or even other Bible verses that help balance Jesus' words here that we end up thinking, well, he didn't really mean what he said. Then we won't bother asking him for anything because prayer makes no difference. It's like there's a, a wall between us and God. He sees us, but he's unmoved by our prayers. So there's no point in praying. There's no relationship. And that's not right either. James captures both of these dangers when he says, you do not have 
Because you do not ask God. That's the wall, isn't it? When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's me treating God like a genie. Well, how do we avoid those dangers if we're treating God like a genie and wondering why he doesn't answer us? We need to genuinely seek God and surrender to his will. Find out what, what it is that God is doing in his world and get on board. I love the way Psalm 37 verse 4 expresses this truth. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When our hearts are filled with God's heart, we can pray with confident expectation because our will is aligned with his will. The, the second danger is avoided by remembering that God is our powerful and loving Heavenly Father who delights in responding to the needs of his children. So ask boldly. Tell God what is in your heart. Tell him about it. Share the desires of our hearts. Just like a trusting child. I, I think the child of God, the Son of God, Jesus himself, demonstrates the right balance as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba Father, beautiful, there's no wall there at all, is there? Abba Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Jesus is completely honest there, isn't he? Yet not what I will, but you will. Jesus is completely surrendered. It's beautiful. The second key to powerful prayer is forgiveness. Verse 25 says, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Forgiveness is not easy. C.S. Lewis said, Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Our capacity to forgive others flows from receiving God's complete forgiveness of us. When we recognise that the catalogue of our sin has been removed by Jesus' death on the cross for us. What extraordinary generosity. What costly salvation. Then we can forgive others, can't we? Why wouldn't we? In fact, failure to forgive shows a dangerous double standard. Jesus makes it clear that forgiving others is essential if we expect to be forgiven ourselves by God. It's essential for effective prayer in the context here. Now, let me ask you, is there anyone, dead or alive, that you need to forgive? Perhaps this could be uh, part of your, your journey in prayer this week as you ask God by his Holy Spirit to help root out from your heart any unforgiveness. It's not easy. 
This is yet another miracle of God's work in our hearts. Friends, we've covered a lot of important ground here this morning in this passage. And there's so many more we could think we could look at. But, but let's bring these issues and ourselves to God in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, as we welcome and worship Jesus as King, please grant each of us a fruitful life, a deep faith, and a forgiving heart.